that button. There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in Revelation chapter 2, just down by the end of the chapter. I think we're at verse 24, to be honest. But um, here's the backstory. This is a, a book of uh, the New Testament that is uh, mostly prophecy. We haven't gotten there yet. That starts around, you know, four, five, six chapters. Um, we're in the end of chapter 2. The Apostle John writes this letter. He's the last man standing. All the other apostles have died martyrs' deaths. He's on the island of Patmos um, being punished for being a believer, and God uses that time to give him this vision, this whole book, um, and these seven letters to seven churches. So uh, these are seven letters written by Jesus Christ, dictated by Jesus Christ that he's writing down that the Spirit is giving to John to write down, to send to seven local churches in, in what is now Turkey. It's called then Asia Minor. So the thing is, before you think you're reading somebody else's mail, it's important to note that every one of the seven churches ends with the phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these are seven letters addressed to seven actual churches in the first end of the first century. And yet there's something for every Christian in these letters. There's something for every church in the, in these letters. So with that in mind, so I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Beautiful. And those of you on zoom, even though I can't hear you say amen and wave and there you go. Oh, I see a sign there. What does that say? Anyway, oh, those are the people in Vanuatu. Welcome. Oh, it says amen. I love it. Oh, he's got a sign that says amen. I love that. I love it. That's our dear friend Claire back there. Okay. Revelation chapter two. Um, I'm still laughing about the amen sign. Um, to the uh, Let's start in verse 18. So we get the flavor where we are. This is the church called Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. These are the words of the Son of God. He uses a different title for himself in every letter based on what they need to hear. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and then that you're now doing more than you did at first. Growth. Excellent. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. That's probably not her name. It's more of a title. This is somebody that's a false prophetess that has risen up in the church and has got some followers behind her. Maybe a charismatic person, maybe telling them what they want to hear. But Jesus, who would know, says she only calls herself a prophet. She's not really a prophet. By her teaching, I'm still in verse 20, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We talked about this last week. I have given her time to repent of her immor immortal uh, immorality, not immortality, immorality. That's God's grace, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed uh, of suffering or a sick bed. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until, un, uh, sorry, unless they repent of her ways. Verse 23, I will strike her children. That's her followers that are following this false prophet who should have known better because they're in the church. I will strike them dead. 
Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. That's where we left off. Now picking it up in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, at that church, in other words, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So that's an important thing probably for most of us, because we haven't fallen victim, hopefully, to a false prophet or prophetess or bad teaching somewhere. That's what he's saying to the rest. So these are the faithful ones in Thyatira church who don't hold to her teaching. They knew the real so well that when they, when they heard the counterfeit, they understood it immediately as counterfeit. We say that again and again in this Bible study, but it bears repeating. Our, a friend of my wife and I um, named Martha worked for years at Bank of America, and her job was counting money. Eventually, they had machines do it, but even so, they trained her and the others who did this job regularly, and they never looked at counterfeit bills. You would think in a class, now see why this is a counterfeit? They just concentrated on showing them the real $100 bills and 20s and 5s and $500 bills to the point that she said she could feel fake before she even looked at it. If Hillary Clinton's picture is on the bill, it's probably not real. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, we need as Christians to know what we believe and why we believe it in the word. So that if somebody teaches false doctrine, we'll know immediately, recognize it as counterfeit. That's what he's telling this church. Hold on, verse 24, uh, 25, sorry, to what you have, the doctrines that you've learned from the Apostle Paul and others, from the scriptures they already have. The Bible is still being put together and copied and what have you. Hold on to it. So the question is for you and me, how do we hold on to it. It's not something physical. That's a metaphor, isn't it? The way you hold on to it is to constantly remind yourself. In the Old Testament, there's the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord, and you shall worship, and it goes on from there. What happens in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere, I think Leviticus as well, is the Jews are told to remind each other when you walk and when you're working and when you're eating, remind each other of what we know to be true and to write scriptures and wear them. All kinds of instruction for your children, for your grandchildren, constant reminders. The reason is because the world is bombarding you and I with television and the internet and movies and popular music and books and magazines and a thousand other ways of their agenda and their values. So we have to be in the word more than we're in the world by a long shot. So remind ourselves, you can't do that without reading the Bible. It's best to read it every day. Prayer, fellowship with others, iron sharpens iron. Okay. I don't want to beat that dead horse, but hold on to what you have until I come. Now, does that mean the second coming? It certainly could. It didn't come in the first century, did it? This is around 95 
AD, give or take a year or two. He didn't come in the first century, so it could mean that. It could mean he's coming to them in judgment on Jezebel and the others. Um, let's face it, there are two deadlines for every human life. One is the second coming, which is the end of human history and the start of the millennium and new history, right? The second coming, that's when reset really happens. But there's another one that nobody likes to talk about, and that is your or my date when we die, right? So you might think, I don't think the Lord's coming back anytime soon, but you might get hit by a bus as you walk out to your car right now. It's not likely, but you never know. In any case, we need to be ready because we don't know what day he's coming or we're coming to him, if you will. Verse 26, now a promise. To the one who is victorious or an overcomer, same word, just two ways to translate it. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. What's the central phrase in the Lord's prayer? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. That's the heart of every prayer. Even when we say, I really hope you'll do this for that person or this person. Ultimately, we really are praying, but overrule me. If your will is different, you have a reason way better than mine. Those that do his will are the ones that are victorious. Notice that they do it to the end. Again, the end of the world or the end of their lives. Perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, and to do his will, you have to know his will, right? If I said, do the will of God, and you would say, well, what is the will of God? I'd say, get a Bible out and start reading. Um, years ago, I can't remember if the title, I think it was How to Know the Will of God, this book. Um, gosh, 35, 40 years ago, I read this book. I can't, it might not be the title. But anyway, in that book, there was two halves to the book. The first half was God's revealed will. No question, his revealed will. That's what's in the Bible. So if you're praying about, should I try heroin? Should I have an affair? Should I cheat at work? Should I lie to this person? There's no need to worry about whether that's a gray area. It's not. It's in the revealed will of God. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. And a thousand other commandments we have, do we not, in the word. But there are things that are not in the Bible that God must have a will about. For example, I have a, a job opportunity in Detroit, Michigan, and I have a job opportunity in San Diego. Most of you would choose San Diego. That'd be pretty easy, right? But who knows? It might be God's will for me to go to Detroit for this other job or to take neither of them. And you can't look which job up in the book of Job, which is Job. But anyway, you can't look that up in the Bible, right? So what do you do? Flip a coin. No, you just pray. Please show me, God, open doors where you want me, close them where you don't. Please make it obvious to me. I'm a little slow. That's what I always say. Give me wisdom. Let your will be done. And he invariably will, but he might make you wait a little while. In any case, we are to do his will. In a general sense, when Jesus is speaking in the gospel of John, he says, and this is the will of my father, this is general, that you believe in the son whom he has sent. So there's a lot more than that, but that's the basic will of God, isn't it? Those who do his will to the end, he's going to give authority over the nations. That's an amazing thing. 
isn't it? Most of you are not politicians. You don't have aspirations to, I'd like to be governor and eventually president or emperor of some. He's saying we will have authority over nations. We will rule and reign with Jesus in the thousand year millennium. Or if you're an amillennialist, there is no millennium. Um, that we will in some way reign in his kingdom. The word for reign, by the way, is also the word for shepherd. So it's more than just ruling. It's also caring for and helping people, guiding people and what have you. Don't think that we will do this on our own. We will do this under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We sit with him on his throne as he sits on his father's throne. But it's, this is an amazing promise to a small church in an obscure place in Turkey in the first century, as it is a, a weird promise to me and you and all of you, wherever you live, that we will reign with him. Most of us don't even have the aspiration. I don't really care to reign over people, right? But with God's spirit in leaders, if everybody in Washington and Sacramento had God's spirit that was ruling, it'd be a whole different place that we live in, wouldn't it? So. Um, the, the residents of Thyatira are promised that they will reign with him. Um, in Luke 20, Jesus gives an analogy. Do you remember about um, a king who gives something to three different people and sees how they use it or spend it? And those who are faithful, he gives authority over 10 cities and not as faithful authority over five cities. This is the whole, the same kind of an idea um, that is in Luke 20. We see this also in Revelation 20, verse 4, during the millennium. Let's, since we're already in Revelation, go to Revelation 20 real fast. After the second coming, the beginning of the millennium, the thousand years, Revelation 20. Skip down to verse 4. For those thousand years, Satan is in prison locked away along with the false prophet and the antichrist jesus the rightful owner of planet earth rules peacefully for a thousand years verse 4 of revelation 20 i saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge and i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God, they had not worshiped the beast, that's the Antichrist, or his image, this is after the tribulation, and had not received his mark on their foreheads, 666, or their hands. They came to life and did what? Reigned with Christ. How long? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. There are those that think the thousand years is simply symbolic for a long period of time. But six, I think it is, times in this chapter, a thousand years, a thousand years, when the thousand years is over, I think John knew how to say the long period of time. It kind of sounds to me like it's a thousand years. Um, but that's just my take. Um, and it's not an essential of faith. So uh, you can, I'll let you figure that one out. So he's motivating their perseverance to remind them, you may feel like you are under the thumb of the Roman emperor or the American government or wherever you live. We will reign with Christ. This is unbelievably gracious. Is it not of God? He could just say, I'll let you be in my kingdom. I would sweep floors in his kingdom if he wanted me to. No, he says, no, no, put the broom down, come and reign with me. 
Some have asked, who do we reign over? Who do we shepherd? Other believers, uh, it's not really clear. There are unbelievers that go through the tribulation that would go into the thousand years, so it certainly would be at least them. Um, let's keep rolling, shall we? Uh, verse 27, uh, authority over the nations, verse 27, that one rule them with an iron scepter uh, and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. Let me read that in another translation. Hold on one second, because it sounds a little stilted in the version I'm reading. <laughs> uh, verse 20. Uh, yeah, he will rule them. That's Yeah, that's why it's weird. Um, authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now he's quoting Isaiah 30, speaking of God, speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. Um, also, Psalm 2 is all about that. Um, I'm tempted to go there, but I won't for now. Um, but we may. Um, so this is a, a government in which righteousness, listen, godliness is enforced. Here we have certain laws, right? But godliness is not enforced in America, right? There's no penalty if you just, I don't want to be godly today. Nobody comes and arrests you or there's no penalty. In this kingdom, there is Jesus Christ who is ruling authoritatively, rightfully as the owner of the earth, and he enforces righteousness. He does not need to do so for you and me because by then the second coming has happened. The transformation has happened, if you will, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, we now have glorified bodies. All of us will no longer have, listen, a sin nature. You won't want to sin. You won't be able to sin. You won't sin, okay? But there will be there those there who can and may want to sin. At the end of the thousand years, if you know Revelation 20, the devil is released from his prison for a short time, and amazingly, after a thousand years of the reign of Jesus, where there would be no wars on planet Earth, you don't, locksmiths are out of business because nobody's stealing. There will be, Satan has one last chance to gain followers, and amazingly to me, he does get some people to go with him, and they are judged along with Satan and thrown into the lake of fire. But we're getting 17 chapters ahead, so we better go back to chapter two. Um, let's see, what else did we want to say? Uh, we haven't gotten to the morning star yet. Um, go quickly with me. I can't resist. Go to Psalm 2. So if you're not a big page turner, you don't have to go there. But roughly in the middle of the Bible is Psalms or Isaiah. So if you go back that far, you find Psalms. They're all numbered. Go to Psalm 2. I don't want to stay here long because we're in Revelation, but I will tell you, Psalm 2 is really fun to read and decide who's talking. Because in Psalm 2, <clears throat> excuse me, all three members of the Trinity talk. God the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks, Jesus the Messiah speaks. It's, it's recognizable if you really look at it. Um, let's see. Um, Psalm 2, what verse do we want, he asked. It's in my notes somewhere here. Um, mm -hmm. um, so he, for example, 
The Holy Spirit speaks in verse one. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against, who are they against? The Lord, that's God the Father, and his anointed one, that's the Messiah. Do you see that? So it has to be the Holy Spirit speaking. Um, but skip down to verse six. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit all the way through until verse six. The Father speaks in verse six, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus that he's installed. It's the Father who installed him. Do you see how the speaker has changed? Jesus speaks in verse seven, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is still Jesus talking, you are my son. Do you see that's not the spirit? It's not the Father. It's a trip. This whole psalm I've written in, in, on, in my Bible, Holy Spirit, Father, Jesus, Father, everybody that's speaking. Anyway, something to do when you're sitting at the bus stop and you're bored. Um, but um, go down to verse 9. Ask, well, verse 8, ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. The nations. <clears throat> Why? Because they're his to give. Right now, they're, they're, they're Satan's. Do you know that when Satan tempts Jesus, do you remember? with the three temptations. One of them is, if you'll just bow down to me, Jesus, says Satan, I'll give you all the nations of the world, for they are mine to give. Do you notice in that passage, Jesus doesn't say balderdash. No, they're not, because they are. He's the God, small g, of this world, Satan. But Jesus, the rightful owner, when he comes back, Satan no longer has control of those nations, and he will, verse 8, Make the nations our inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter. That can't be Jesus because it's you. So it must be Father or Holy Spirit speaking to Jesus. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So the picture is of an iron bar hitting a piece of pottery. There's no question. Is Do you think the iron's going to break or the pottery kind of thing? What he's saying is we will have rule because we rule and reign with Christ. Go back to Revelation, if you will. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Beautiful. You guys on Zoom? Okay. I don't see the amen sign in Vanuatu. Okay, there it is. <laughs> I love that. All right. Verse 28. I will also give that one. What one? The one that's going to rule, the one who's victorious or an overcomer, the faithful Christian to the end will also is being promised a bunch of stuff here. I will also give that one the morning star. Now, that sounds like a nice thing. In that culture, the morning star was the planet Venus. Does that have any meaning here? No, it doesn't. Well, what is the meaning? I'm thankful that not everything is this way, but I'm thankful that some things are this way. In the book of Revelation, sometimes God says, this means this. Turn to Revelation 22. We should have done this when we were back at 20. Go all the way to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, chapter 22. And um, let's pick it up in verse 12, because I can't resist again. This is a great verse if you're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't believe Jesus is Almighty God. In chapter 1, 
the almighty God, the father speaks and says that he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. You show that to Jehovah's Witnesses, they go, I see it. God, the father is the alpha and the omega, no problem. Then you take him to this chapter and look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And I always say to the Jehovah's Witnesses, who's coming soon? Who's returning to the earth? The father? And they say, no, Christ. Good. My reward is with me. I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. Is that Jesus? Yes, they say. Verse 13, I am the, uh-oh, alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Who was speaking again? Jesus. Same title as God the Father. So either that's blasphemy and he's evil or he is God, right? Blessed are those who wash their robes, verse 14, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, the holy city, heaven. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here it comes. Um, I, Jesus, verse 16 have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Before we get to, the, we're looking for Morningstar. Do you see it right after that? But think about that. He says, I'm the root and the offspring. Okay. I'm the root, the beginning and the fruit, if you will. For example, for me, I have a father. He passed away years ago. His name was Sam. Okay. So he would be the root for me. My offspring would be Stephen and Allison, our two children. Are you with me? This verse strangely says that Jesus is both the root of David, because he created David, and the offspring of David. The human Jesus came down the line of David. He descended from David. I'm the root and the offspring of David, who, by the way, was the great king of Israel. And who else are you, Jesus? The bright morning star. Now I'll go back and read verse 28. He'll, he's going to give overcomers the morning star. He's going to give overcomers what? Jesus Christ. You say, well, if they're overcomers, if they're believers, they already have Jesus Christ, don't they? The answer is yes, but in a more full-orbed sense, in a more intimate sense, we will have Jesus than we ever had before. It's almost like being pen pals with someone, and eventually you fly to Europe and meet the person and have fellowship with them. And if it's a person of the opposite sex, let's say you fall in love and there's a much deeper relationship than dear Harriet, you're writing letters and she's writing dear Thomas or whatever. Okay. Um, so that's the morning star will be given Jesus in a more full orbed way because it's the new dawn, the dawn of his rule. And it's always the morning star, the first star of morning verse 29 is same as most of the other ones. I mentioned it earlier, whoever has an ear, that's everybody, right? Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a warning to you and I to not treat this like, I don't live in Thyatira, this isn't my church. It might be. It might be that you have allowed a false prophet that you like on TV, the way he preaches or she preaches, and um You've allowed that false teaching into your life or even into your church. So everything that's in each of these letters is for each Christian and each church. We all have to examine ourselves and hold fast to that which is true. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. It applies to everyone. It applies to the Jezebel types who are false prophets. 
you better hear. It, false, it applies to those who follow those false prophets. It applies to the elders in that church who allowed that false prophet to spread her garbage spiritually in that church. And it applies to the faithful ones as well, to everybody. Chapter three. Okay, Sardis. Let's read the letter and then we'll talk about it. To the angel of this church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, verse 2, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds incomplete or unfinished is the feeling of the the word in Greek, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. This is an unusual letter. This city of Sardis had seen its best days. It's now the little village of Sart, S-A-R-T, all that's left is a few huts. It's really nothing of a town. It would make Raymond, California look like New York City kind of thing, right? Um, so um, they're starting to decline. They were, had been very wealthy. It's a juncture of several major roads or highways in that day. So major trade went on there. Everybody knew there was a connection in Sardis to Sardis and money. The first coinage minted in that part of the world was minted there first, um, where modern money was born, you might say. Sardis does not get a very good grade, as you can see. It doesn't say the church is sick. It says the church is dead. Most, if not all, of the people in this church probably aren't believers, I'm going to show you. There's a few that are, though. But the vast majority aren't. The weird thing is they're meeting every week, praising the Lord, praying, you would assume, hearing sermons or people expound on the word of God, and yet they don't know that they're dead. Or if they do, they don't care. Sardis was known for easy money, luxury, softness, sounds like America to me. We're the richest country on earth. Easy money, apathy, but with all that, just like the Roman Empire, loose morals sexually. They worshipped pagan gods like some of the other churches with immorality. Pagan temples with temple prostitutes, if you can believe that. Total decadence. Um, they had a temple there. The columns were 60 feet high, six feet wide. Um, the site was ideal for defense. It was 
high above the valley with sharp cliffs and only one way up or down. So it's very hard to attack. But two times this city sort of slept in their decadence and their luxury and got attacked and sacked by other armies. Um, so let's see what else do I want to tell you about them. Uh, so this is a church that, this is a, a city too, that had great overconfidence in their money and in their, we're safe, we got it made. Sort of, it's a case of who needs God when you got everything, right? Um, so let's start with verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis, just to review, he mentions that the angel in chapter one is the messenger for that church. Translation, the pastor, the head elder of that church, who's in charge of that church. Does that mean it's not to the whole church? No, it's to all of them, because he's going to read it to all of them. But that's who it's to, Pastor Harold or whoever it is. The angel of that church is not a, a spiritual being. It's the messenger. The word means both. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What's that? The seven spirits of God, we saw that in chapter one. It doesn't mean there's seven holy spirits. It means uh, it goes back to the Old Testament where it talks about the sevenfold spirit, and it lists the qualities of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits are the one Holy Spirit. He's saying, notice that the description of himself is different in every one. If you have a dead church, there's a lot of things you need to do. And he's, in fact, I'm going to show you five, maybe six, okay? Or a dead faith in yourself. And some of them are things like he says, repent, wake up, remember, things like that. But above all of that, you could do all of that on your own and you would still not be alive Christianity wise. The Holy Spirit is the key on planet earth for us to believe and grow and be a healthy Christian and in a healthy church. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit. I hold the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in a way no one else has, I have the Holy Spirit and he gives it to whomever he wishes. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts and illumination of the word, conviction of sin, you know, all the stuff that the Holy Spirit does. I hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter one, there was the, the, the Messiah, Jesus, holding the seven stars, which are the seven pastors of these seven churches. Universally, you could say Jesus Christ holds the pastors of every true Christian church not the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witness church down the street. Those are not, they don't believe Christian doctrine. But Christian churches, whether the pastor knows it or not, it ain't his church, it's Jesus Christ's church, and he has the, the pastor and the Holy Spirit firmly in his hand. He's the one he's saying who is in control. Why is he saying this? Because they think they're in control. They're wealthy. They got it made. If you came into Sardis from out of town, you would see a vibrant, happening church here with programs and stuff going on five nights a week and huge numbers, maybe. And Jesus, who would know, says, dead. What makes a church alive versus dead? I want to talk about that. For a lot of people, do you know what it is? Numbers. 
you know, they have 2,200 people going to that church. They got 10,000 people going to that church. They have 11 services every Sunday, not necessarily a live church. Sure looks good. You got to look deeper. Does he look deeper? Absolutely. He knows, right? Even not only the deeds, but the motivation behind the deeds, the hearts of the people. These are the words of holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. We keep saying this. I know, I know. He knows. You can hide from me and I can hide from you. We can't hide from God. He knows. I know your deeds. You have a name or a reputation of being alive. Like I said, man, that church is happening over there. Look at all the people. The parking lot is always full. Okay, there would be like chariots or mules or something, camels. The parking lot's always full. So what? Is the gospel truly being preached? Are lives being changed? Are people being shepherded and ministered to? You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Well, that's just your opinion, Jesus. No, he's right, right? You can't say that. He would know. I, I might think your church is dead. You might think mine is. What he thinks matters. It's all about Christ. Amen. You are dead. Now he's using what's called hyperbole here. Hyperbole is exaggeration for effect. Why do you say that? Are they truly 100% dead? No, I'll show you that. There's a few that haven't soiled their garments. We'll get into that. But for the most part, this church is dead. Dead worship. They're going through the motions. It's all about us, our own church. Um, Let's see. Verse two, wake up, strengthen what remains. And there isn't much, right? It's like a picture of a tornado has come through the church and there's a couple chairs left and half of a podium and one wall. And he's saying, you better strengthen what you got that's left. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds incomplete or unfinished in the sight of my God. Now that can mean that they're two, one of two things the commentary said. Number one, they tend to start things and never complete them. There's people like that in churches like that, right? Or it can mean that they, um, that their deeds, although they look good to the outside world, that the motivation for doing them is for their own self-aggrandizement. They uh, analogy that you're all tired of hearing if you've been here for any length of time is that Joe come I come in here and I buy all the paint and I paint the whole outside of the church myself and people say don't you want help and I say oh no no I'm happy to do it I even bought the paint and the paintbrushes and everything and I'll clean up and I just want to do this for the Lord do you like the paint job I'm the guy in the parking lot pointing out I chose the color and I painted the whole church it's a really nice thing to do. No, it's not. Because my motivation was me, me, me. Ain't Joe holy. That's what I'm doing. Am I doing it for his glory? No. It would be better if I did it at 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. when I know no one would see me. And people would come in and go, the church needed painting. Someone's been painting here. And they never find out it was me. That's for God's glory. When you're giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Remember all that? 
It could be that, or that they're just incomplete deeds. Maybe they're the kind of church that gets you to come in, hear the gospel, and pray this prayer with me, Doreen. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I confess my sin. I confess my sin. I receive him as Lord and Savior. Okay, you're in. And that's it. No discipleship, no teaching. Maybe they're not completing that. I don't know what they're not completing, but it ain't complete. And you know who's not happy? The boss, Jesus Christ. So. He says to them, wake up. And that's a, a call for real uh, change, right? He's saying to them, it's not hopeless, but it's close. He's saying what your church is, and there are churches like this, even in our town and in your town. This is a model of, listen, inoffensive Christianity. You all know what Pepsi is, right? Or Budweiser, right? There's Bud and there's Pepsi. And then there's Bud Light, which is watered down Bud, or there's Pepsi Light, which is basically watered down Pepsi. Are you with me? There's also Christianity and there's Christianity Light. We don't like to offend people here. We don't preach about hell. We don't preach about sin, repentance, and all these other things. And we just like to give people positive things and make you happy and tickle a few ears, and make sure that you give, too. So this is, um, um, some of you have heard the term rhino in politics, Republican in name only, or you could say dino, I guess, Democrat in name only. He's not really a Democrat. This is Sino, Christian in name only, C-I-N-O. That's what these people are. They look so alive. They're so compromised, even though there's activity. There's not much Christian spiritual growth going on. Um, notice the other churches, he's always saying, stand fast in the persecution. And he doesn't say that here. I think Satan knows that church is a bunch of phonies, leaves them alone. Satan loves all sin, but Satan loves the most religiosity without the heart of Christ involved. Okay, he loves it when you go through the motions and Jesus isn't even around. Um, this is a bad report card, obviously. There is a worse one coming, you'll see, um, not too far away. I'm just reading notes here. So it's not hopeless, but it, and it's not too late, but um, they really need to work hard to wake up and change. Um, let's see. Uh, this is the least praise he gives to any church except Laodicea, which comes after this uh, further on in chapter three. So go back to the text. Wake up. See, he's saying, say amen if I know you're awake. And only two people go, hey, amen, in this church, right? Nobody's awake. Um, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. That gospel knowledge that you have, strengthen it. Get back in the word. Go back to the beginning. Um, it's about to die. I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Here, God, here it comes. Prescription for a dead church. Number one, wake up and strengthen. Number two, remember. Remember what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Now, you could say that's three different things. They need to remember. Remember. 
Go back to the beginning. Remember when you've heard the gospel, you were convicted. Yes, I'm a sinner. And you were so joyous that there's forgiveness for sin that doesn't depend on you. It depends on your faith in God who did it in Jesus Christ. Remember that joy. Remember the heart of the gospel. Remember how you used to act, he's saying. What you've received and heard, the gospel, the, the other scriptures, hold it fast. Hold on tight to it. Have you ever been somewhere where there's a lot of crime? Or, you know, we have, my wife and I have, and you hold your purse, ladies, differently in those places. And you might, men, you might switch your wallet to your front packet pocket from the back and you might kind of, you know, watch out. Remember what you've received and heard, hold it fast and repent. We said last week, a repentance is a U-turn on the road of life. Absolute change, not only in attitude, not it's not just remorse for sin, but it's a change in, change in attitude that results in a change in direction in your life. Recognize that it's sin. Confession means agreeing with God that what you did or said or thought was sin, and then resolve to change uh, your direction in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then a warning in the middle of verse three, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. How do thieves come? Unexpectedly, suddenly, right? Thieves don't call and leave you a message. Thursday, 8.30, I was thinking of robbing your house. Does that work for you people? Right? They don't do that. They, it would be nice if they did, right? You'd be waiting for them. Um, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This thief thing is going to come back either later tonight or next week. I don't know when. I'm going to tie it into something else. I don't want to tell you now. Um, most of you, when you hear thief, think what? Second coming, Jesus Christ. I'm coming like a thief, thief in the night, right? But there are verses in the Bible that say, I'll just hint now, that you who are true believers will not be caught unaware. You will not be surprised. The ones that aren't ready are the ones that go, oh no, he's here. Oh no. It's time for our two-minute break to stretch our aging bodies. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, hang tight. Two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back. Find your seats, those of you that are here. Let's see, what did I do with my notes? All right, so we're in chapter three, um, and we're right around verse uh, two. No, three. Three, uh, oh, you know, we're beyond that, aren't we? No, we're not. No, we're still in uh, three. Chapter three, verse three. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, hold it fast, repent. If you don't wake up, he's going to come like a thief, implying what? Judgment. <clears throat> I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Why that's in there is because if they knew it was in three years, four months and nine days, they, what would they do? They'd wait till it was a few days out and then they'd repent, which never works, right? There's a reason that the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. I'm glad for that because if you knew it was 2038 is the year, September something, people would wait till then to repent. And in the meantime, they might die suddenly and never get the chance. 
So be ready at any time. Don't wait, right? Okay, um, let's see, we're back. And we're in verse four of chapter three. <clears throat> Yet, this is the reason I said it's not totally dead, but just about. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now, he's not talking about the clothes per se. Oh, it looks like there's treats. Nice. Um, this Bible study, Jeannie and others bring treats. No, no, that's fine. I'm fat enough. Um, bring treats. And we're all going to weigh 100 pounds more by the time Revelation's done. But in any case, that's very nice of Jeannie. Um, let's see. What's he talking about here with these clothes? Okay. Um, first of all, uh, there's a faithful remnant God always maintains, always, whether it was Israel in the Old Testament, when they were apostate, when they were worshiping idols, there was always a faithful remnant. God never doesn't have a witness on the earth. The same is true for Christian uh, Christianity on planet earth. So um, there's a few good among the many bad. Um, Pergamus and Thyatira, there was a few bad among the good. Remember Jezebel and her followers? It's the opposite here. This is not a great church at all. Okay, so the, Sardis is known for trading, listen, woolen goods, okay, and especially dyed clothing. So they know the clothing thing. I've told you this before, if you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, and we're going to dive in a little bit to this idea again, so that when you see it elsewhere in the Bible, you'll understand it. Listen, nakedness in the Bible is symbolic of one's spiritual condition being not good, okay? Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, and immediately they know that they are naked, they were naked before and they weren't ashamed, it says. They instantly do what? Cover up, right? Fig leaves, got to cover my nakedness. In the Bible, clothing and nakedness are symbolic of metaphors for one's, listen, spiritual condition, okay? So with that in mind, clothing is one's spiritual condition. If you've got soiled or dirty clothes, that's your spiritual condition that is not good. Naked is the person that realizes, oh no, spiritually I am bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay, Matthew 5. But there are those who are clothed, and they think, okay, I'm okay now. Adam and Eve, fig leaves, temporary covering, right? What does God do in Genesis 3? Calls out to them, where are you? He knows but he can't find them. He's got GPS. He knows right where they are. They're hiding not only from him, they're suddenly, Adam and Eve, a married couple, are hiding from one another. Nakedness, got to cover up, got to hide from God. Sin makes us hide from one another. Our relationships are never as strong as they can be when we're forgiven and believers um, when we're sinning. Also, it makes us hide from God. What does God do in Genesis 3? He hands out punishment to the snake which is the devil, to Adam, to Eve. And then in grace, he could have just kicked them out naked. What does he do? He provides 
a more permanent, suitable covering. Do you remember what it is? Animal skins. I want you to think with me on this. And then I'm going to show you a bunch of verses that talk about clothing and garments having to do with one's spiritual condition. He makes them animal skin clothing. I don't know if it was rabbits or goats or lambs. It wouldn't surprise me if it was lambs, but it just says animal clothing, animal skins. Think now, who sinned? Adam, Eve. Who didn't sin? Whichever animal God gets the, the skins from. Let's say it's rabbits and, and lambs. Did they sin? No. Is this a sort of a picture of sacrifice? Yes. Is this a picture of something in or someone innocent being sacrificed to cover the sins of those who are guilty? Yes. Genesis 3.15, proto-evangel is what it's called. It's the first time in the Bible that there's a hint about Jesus. The shed, without the shedding, listen, of innocent blood, there's no remission of sin. God provides a more permanent covering before he boots them out of heaven. Now, stay with me on the clothing thing. Go to Matthew 22, and I'll show you another one. Matthew 22, Jesus tells a kind of a weird story about a wedding feast. Matthew 22, and we're in verse 11. At least I think we are. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Well, go back. Go Matthew twenty-two, verse two. Kingdom is heaven. Kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Okay. If the king is God, the son is Jesus. He's getting married. Did you know that? Chapter nineteen. There's going to be a wedding. You're the bride, the church. So there's going to be a wedding. Verse three. He sends his servants. Um, uh, okay, let, let's skip down because what happened in that era, let me just tell you to make this short. What happened in that era was if the king had a banquet, there was a certain dress code. You can't come in your cutoff jean shorts and dirty sandals and shirt with a stain right here. I don't even own nice enough clothing to go to the king's banquet. The king would provide clothing for the guests. Tuxedos for the men, gowns for the women, let's say. You got the picture? He would provide the clothing. Now skip down to uh, verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there not wearing wedding clothes, the clothes he had provided. All the men are in tuxes. They don't own tuxes. They got them from the king. The women didn't own those fancy gowns. They got them from the king. Keep in the back of your mind, clothing is a metaphor for one's spiritual condition. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. Pretty quiet. Okay. Um, friend, he asked, verse 12, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the, the description of hell. You say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. All the guy did was violate the dress code. No, no, much more than that. He was not supposed to be there. 
He had no business being there. He said to himself, I don't need that. I don't need no stinking tuxedo from this king. My clothes are good enough. My righteousness is good enough. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not like that guy who murdered all those people or that leader who ripped off his country and that guy that raped women. And I'm okay the way I am. I don't need a savior. That's why he's kicked out. It has nothing to do with the dress code unless you realize the dress code is his spiritual condition. He doesn't belong there. Our robes of righteousness, which are white for purity, come totally from his righteousness, not ours. We're saved by faith in him, not by works. Okay, I'm staying with the metaphor here because there's others. Um, go to Revelation, go back to Revelation. You remember where that is, right? Go to Revelation chapter seven with me now. Verses nine to 14. We'll try to do this quickly. Revelation seven, verse nine. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. These are all the saved people that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing their own clothes. They were naked. No. They're wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's God the Father, and the Lamb is the Son. And all the angels were standing around the throne, uh, and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And that's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? You want to get something clean, you don't rub blood on it. Unless we're talking spiritually. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. If you rub blood on something, it'll make it red. Not in this case. It makes it pure, which is white. Therefore, um, they're, they're before the throne. They're all saved. Okay, um, go to 1615, Revelation 16, verse 15. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Listen, Jesus Christ, if you were raised Catholic as I was, and Don was, and there's others of you that were, you've seen paintings, drawings, statues of Jesus on the cross, no shirt, no pants, just a white loincloth, haven't you? Right? Wrong. You've seen that. The Romans crucified people completely naked, completely. Why do churches do that? Because, you know, naked, you know. But the truth is, to shame the individual, the criminal, so-called, utter shame, not only naked, but up on a pole so everybody can see him. And usually they would do it along a major highway so that it was, don't 
go against the Roman government, because you see that, that could happen to you. A deterrent for crime, a deterrent for people that were thinking about being revolutionaries. Jesus took the utter nakedness and shame, not only of Adam and of Eve, but of you and me. And instead, we wear his white robes. They are not our own righteousness. We're told in the Bible to put on Jesus Christ. God is dressed in, he wears light. I put on righteousness and it clothed me, Job 29. Oh, there it is. God is clothed in light as a garment, Psalm 104. Um, Jesus in Mark 5 casts a legion of demons out of a guy. Do you remember that? And it says, and later he is seen fully clothed. Implying what? He used to run around naked. It's a metaphor. He's now saved. The demons are cast out. He's clothed in Christ's own clothing. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. We could go on and on, but you get an idea anyway of the clothing being a metaphor for one's spiritual condition. Let's keep rolling. Yet you have, verse 4, a few people who haven't soiled their clothes with this love of money, with this luxurious living, with this sexual immorality. They will walk with me dressed in white. They are worthy. He provides the clothing, the righteousness. Verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. That's you. You say, I don't look good in white. You're going to look great in white in heaven. Um, there are some that believe, by the way, that the reason Jesus comes in the clouds, it's a cloud of witnesses of billions of people all dressed in white, which appears when it's way up there like a huge cloud. Pretty cool. You're a part of the cloud. Some of you are partly cloudy right now. Let's move. <laughs> Me too. Let's move on. Dressed in white, they're worthy. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. I read that wrong, didn't I? I will never blot out that person. From, yeah, that's right. From the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Talking about saved people. But the question is, what do you mean by blot out the name? There have been Christians who have worried about this verse because they thought it meant, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, but man, if I mess up, and I sin, he's going to get an eraser and go, no, Joe Sharino is out. And then I have to repent. And then he might with a pencil, write my name back in. And then if I sin next Thursday, no, he's out again. Not so. Okay. What's going on here? Cities in those days had registers of who were the citizens, who lives in the town. Okay, so that if you were searching for somebody and you were powerful and had money, you could go to the offices of the government of that area and go, does Jeff Harkenreiter live here? And if you knew somebody well enough to help you out, he could look in the registry and G.H. Harkenreiter. Yes, he lives here. If Jeff, this is in a secular sense, not Christian. If Jeff, God forbid, passed away they would take his name out of the registry because the registry was only for living residents, unlike the U.S. where you can vote even when you're dead. Okay, did I say that? Yes, I did. Um, okay, so in Greek, this is a weird sentence because it reads like this. 
Um, I will never, not never, like it's double negative. You know, I ain't got no bananas, you know, means you have bananas. It's a double negative for emphasis. I will never, never, ever blot that person's name out of the book of life. There are those that believe that, and we're going to look at the books that God keeps. And there are several, by the way, not just this one. There's the book of life, which a lot of scholars believe God keeps in heaven. Okay, listen, of every human being that is currently alive physically. With me so far? Okay. Right now it's 8 billion-ish, right? Give or take. I haven't counted lately. But as people die who are unbelievers, their chance is over. They can no longer believe they're blotted out of that book in heaven. You with me so far? Yes, Joe, but what about believers? Whether they're alive or whether they pass away, their name is never blotted out. But wait, it's the book of life. And they did die. They died physically, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There is alive. They're more alive the second they died than they were when they were alive in the flesh. With me so far? Okay. So um, to blot out one's name, uh, Ezekiel, Exodus, sorry, 32, 32, and 33 describes this situation. It involves somebody passing on. In a, in a city registry kind of thing. Originally, it meant just to die. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, Luke 10, Jesus get, uh, sends the apostles out. Do you remember? And they come back and report to him. It was awesome. What do you mean? Even the spirits were subject to us. Remember, because of the power he gave them, we heal people. It was awesome. We were witnessing and people were believing. And the spirits, we were able to command the spirits. Do you remember what Jesus says in, in Luke 10? Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice, listen, that your names are written in heaven. In pencil, ink, permanent. You're saved. It's an awesome thing. Do you realize that your name, I mean this literally, is written in heaven. Does God keep books because he can't remember? No, no. He keeps books so that we'll remember, and it'll be evident to everybody at judgment. We'll get to that in Revelation 20. Okay, so, so the recipients can get it. Yeah, so there's no blotting out of a Christian's name, but what he means is that they will be truly dead, and once you die, Hebrews says there's no second chance. It is appointed unto each man, listen, to live and die once, and then the judgment. No reincarnation, no purgatory, which is a Catholic doctrine, which is, you know, Ken was a pretty good Christian, but not great. So he's not going to go to hell, but he's also not ready for heaven. Because Jesus' sacrifice just is not enough to pay for some of the things he did. So he has to go to purgatory and suffer in the flames for, you know, maybe nine or ten months. What did you say? That's right. And Patty said, and you can pay his way out. The whole doctrine of purgatory was invented by the Catholics to earn money because they were building incredible big cathedrals all over Europe. And this guy, Johann Tetzel, comes up with a slogan, which is, when the coin in the coffer rings, you're giving to the church, the soul from purgatory springs. 
Meaning Uncle Harry died, the poor guy, I think he's in purgatory. If you could give $500, 1-800-Cathedral with your credit card, you might be able to spring Uncle Harry early from purgatory. Is there a purgatory? No, there's heaven, there's hell. There's nothing in between. There's no sort of hell, but not quite, but you get to graduate and forget it. Then the Catholics also invented limbo, which is where babies go. You got me. Anyway, um, meaningless stuff. Let's move on, shall we? Um, Let's see. Oh, let's talk about um, Revelation 20. Go back to Revelation 20. You say we were just there, Joe. Why didn't you have us? I'm sorry. Revelation 20. Look at verse 11. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the judgment for unbelievers, a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, meaning insignificant people and kings and billionaires and Bill Gates. And Okay, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Translation, every single sin they ever committed was recorded and will be discussed, revealed, and judged. That's everything they ever did or said or even thought that was against the will of God. You say, okay, you're making me worry here because I'm, I, I still sin and I, you don't know about my past. Oh, yes, you don't know about my past. My point is, what about your name? What about my name? And the answer to that is under sins committed, previously there was 180 pages for me, okay? Now it's all blank and it says paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, period. Past present, future. If you don't think that's good news, you don't understand the gospel. It's an amazing thing. It's not a license to sin. Because he's our Lord and Savior, we want to sin less and less to please him, right? But when we do sin, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So um, let's see. Yeah, not blotting out believers. We already talked about that. I can't resist one more book reference. Since we're at the back of Revelation, go to uh, Revelation 22. This is a stern warning. It's a warning to the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a warning to the Mormons. It's a warning to uh, Seventh-day Adventists. It's a warning to Christian science. What are you saying, Joe? I'm saying this is the Bible. 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages on three continents by a bunch of people, most of which didn't know each other. And yet there's one cohesive message, God's message to humanity regarding all things spiritual that we need to know. What's your point? Don't mess with it. Don't subtract anything from it. Don't add anything. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, 
God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anything, if anyone takes away words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Don't mess with God's word. Don't add to it. Mormons have three other holy books besides the Bible. Don't do it. Very, that's another book reference. I thought I would throw that in at no additional charge. Um, okay, let's keep rolling. We're still in verse five, aren't we? And we still have time. Um, dressed in white, never blot out the name from the book of life. But I, Jesus is saying, will acknowledge, I'm at the end of verse five. I, Jesus, will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Translation, when you get to heaven, if there's any question about sin that Jim Foster committed, Jesus says, wait, he's mine. Or she's mine. Paid for by me. Look at the white robe, Lord. No judgment in terms of sin. He paid on that cross a debt we can't even imagine how bad it was. All the guilt of you, me, and a few billion other people. Maybe more than that. Amazing. Um, let's see. Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father. By name, by the way. It's pretty amazing. What's your point? Just this. You ever remember when Jesus talks about, if anyone is ashamed of me before men and won't acknowledge my name, Jesus Christ, are you a Christian? Well, kind of. Are you or aren't you? Uh, I don't know. I'm embarrassed, and he's not embarrassed to acknowledge me before his father. All the more reason we ought to be proud to say, yes, I'm a Christian. If you hate me for that, so be it. If you think it's stupid, you want to make fun of me, go ahead. But I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason for my salvation, not my goodness. All the more reason we should be bold about acknowledging his name before people around us. Um, yeah. Okay. Verse six. There it is again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. It's possible that there's a lot of people in America, wealthy, fat and sassy and lazy and luxurious. And, oh, we suffered so much yesterday. The air conditioning was off for an hour. It was just, come on. We're so spoiled um, that we might have a brand of Christianity that God wants to tweak just a little. It's possible. We might be a little bit of Sardis, a little bit of Thyatira. That's something each of us have to look at, right? Okay. Now we come to Philadelphia. All we can do is introduce it because we're just about out of time. This is not the church in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is the city in Turkey that he's describing. Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Um, let's see. <clears throat> This is the only church that gets an A, grade-wise. He has nothing bad to say about Philadelphia. He's got some advice, but the following church, Laodicea, we'll see next week, he's got nothing good to say. Keep in mind 
there are those who believe that the seven churches are not only seven literal churches in Turkey in the first century, which they clearly are. Some people say these are also seven church ages throughout history, and they randomly assign, okay, that's the Middle Ages, and this is the Reformation, and this is the 1800s and 1900s, and this is the whatever generation. Might be true. There might be a little bit of each church in every church. You, you know, who knows? I'm just throwing that out there because you'll see why when we get into this next week uh, to the controversial verse that we didn't get to tonight. Um, what else do I want to tell you? Or should we just read the letter and then we'll talk about it next week? Um, uh, Allah Sahir is now what was Philadelphia back then, city in Turkey. Um, yeah, these people get an A. If they get an A, we should pay special attention. They're doing a lot of stuff right, right, in God's will. Let's read the letter and then we'll close. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No, we don't have time to dive in. We will next Tuesday, God willing. Anyway, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get out of here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing book, and the fact that we have letters from Jesus to churches is mind-blowing, God. May we hear them. We have ears. Help us to hear them and examine ourselves and say, is that me? And is that one me? And do I need to wake up? And do I need to repent? We're thankful that you're intimately involved with the churches and with the pastors, God. Who knows what kind of shape we'd be in if you weren't? Help us to hold on to what we have, God, the truth, and to know it so well we're never fooled by counterfeits. Help us to hold on to our faith, staying connected to you by your word and by prayer and in fellowship with other believers. Help us to stay connected to one another. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us right now. Thank you for this time, God. We love you and we can't wait to see you. But in the meantime, use us for your glory any way you see fit. Thank you for the white robes, Lord. They, they certainly are foreign to us. They're your righteousness. We're so thankful we have them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here on Zoom. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. That's really important. God bless all of you. We'll see you next time, hopefully. Take care.